0: I don't want a pickle, just want to ride on my motorcycle. All right, Nokomoto episode 15. I'm your host, MotoGP, with me is the co-host, Swiggy. Yep. All right, remember, email us at NoCoMotoPodcast.com. We also have a Twitter at podcast, which is... As so far as I know, like, completely useless.
1: It was definitely a mistake. Whatever,
0: right. But, you know, it's a great source to uh, access all of the MotoGP riders' retarded um, t- Twitter accounts at once, if you want. Um, okay, so getting off onto this one, we got a lot to talk about, don't we? We do. I think I want to start with the results of my harley-davidson writers academy graduation so as alluded to in a previous episode i didn't have my full endorsement for a while for complicated reasons and i've got it again and for now this time for the first time i've gotten my license through an msf course But it wasn't just any MSF course. (laughs) I took the Harley-Davidson New Rider Academy, and wow, do I have some things to talk about. Now, I will preface this with saying that it's just an MSF course with a bunch of Harley stuff added. So all the MSF stuff was great. Honestly, absolutely wonderful. Riding as long as I have been, the experience that I've got, Uh, loads of great stuff in there. I I definitely um, learned things. I realized things about my writing that I hadn't taken a close enough look at before. If the way you're going to get your license is the Harley Riders Academy, I'm not going to tell you not to, because at the end of the day, it is an MSF course, which is excellent. I mean, it's not especially excellent as compared to any other MSF course. And there are some reasons I think it's slightly inferior. But at the end of the day, you should take one of these courses no matter how long you've been riding. And I know that you've heard a million people say this before, but it really is true.
1: Well, even if you do end up, you know, if you, t- if you end up taking the Harley Davidson one, which may be the only conveniently close one to you the whole thing about the MSF course is that it gets you started. And what the MSF course does is it gives you the skills for the bare minimum of what you need to be able to ride a motorcycle. It's the bare minimum you can achieve to be licensed to ride a motorcycle. You know, you're going to have to do more. You're going to have to continually learn. You're going to learn lessons on the road. You may take, more courses later on you may take you know you may do track days you may take the advanced course i think a lot of them recommend after about a year of riding you generally want to do another the more advanced course because a year is right about the point where you start to get overconfident yeah and that's where you need to get rein back in again
0: i i see that um the reason i think it's a little bit more valuable than maybe you just suggested is that a lot of people build their own basics and there's a lot of very small fundamental things that even I didn't have quite right. Anyone that's taken the MSF course that's written for a while, um, uh, these uh, you know, instructors have told me, I've sort of looked into it and read accounts that, you know, writers that have been writing for a while, One of the biggest things is not breaking properly with your right hand using all four fingers and all that. I've definitely gotten into a three-finger style that I like to use that's, I don't know, maybe more of a track thing or whatever, but for writing out in the real world, probably not ideal, right? And, you know, it's it's tough to say because maybe... The MSF course was designed for that four finger braking with cable operated brakes in mind, and it wasn't taking into account hydraulic brakes, but still it was just nice to sort of go right back to square one and rebuild fundamentals in the correct way. I definitely discovered um, in really, really tight situations, I favor right hand turns over left, which I didn't know that was super helpful. Um I took it upon myself before to practice a lot of slow maneuvers in parking lots but I'd never really been called upon to like really really do it the way you're supposed to you know be expected to be able to do it. So it was kind of fun to attack the box a few times, you know, the dreaded figure 8 inside the the four parking space although it is a little bigger than four parking spaces and go at that and Yeah, I ran wide a few times, but it didn't take me very long to make that box my bitch. (laughs) Um, Let's see. So I I just kind of want to walk everyone through the Harley-Davidson New Rider's experience, because really this is an attack on not the dealership at where I did it, because they're good people, and definitely not an attack on the instructor, because she was great. And I really don't want to take too many shots at the people I was in the class with. A couple of them I will do, but for the most part, they were they were great folks, and it was fun to be in there with them. Now, the biggest problem with the Harley Riders Academy... Now, I did it for free, because I won a contest, because I will just enter contests left and right, I don't give a shit like you want to attack my email inbox whatever bro like i'm immune to your marketing so i get i did it for free the problem is is around here the going rate on the 2-day MSF course is 250 bucks the harley riders academy is 360 something dollars it's
1: more expensive yes wow
0: so it's three days: Friday evening, uh, Saturday eight to five, Sunday eight until whenever everyone passes the test or whatever it is. Right? That's
1: interesting. Mine was a day and a half, and it was let's do this, no fucking around. The Harley course is all fucking around. So the very
0: f- so, on uh, you so you let's say you've signed up right? You're going in. The first thing they do is walk you around the entire dealership and give you a hard sell in every single department. Service, parts, the sales floor, uh, it's everything. They walk you through. Every employee has a little spiel that they give you. They try to sell you something. They try to sell you on something. Then you go sit down in your classroom they've got a little uh, leather booklet for you in which they ask you to do things like write down your goals, write down a list of the Harley Davidson gear you would like to purchase. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making that up. I'm not making that up. This uh, is
1: this is what like this is what Facebook has spent millions of dollars on automating a system to do to spy on you for.
0: Yeah so so you go uh, just everything has you you, basically what you're doing is the msf and then harley comes swoops in afterwards and gives you a sales pitch on every step of the process so you know i I mean it was a little bit more fun for me knowing a little bit more about bikes because everyone else in the class was basically totally green right so we're going through the service department and like They're showing us how they wash bikes. They're showing us like their loading dock. They're showing us that they're showing off that they have a dyno, right? You know? I'm asking a few questions, like, well, what if I just what if I don't need a bike retuned? I just want to know horsepower and torque. And the guys seem like shocked, like, oh, okay, well, that's only half the price or whatever, right?
1: Um You know, this whole concept is actually for gear. Makes kind of makes a lot of sense. I know a lot of MSF. If Harley
0: dealers sold real gear, it would make a lot of sense.
1: Okay, true. I know there are a lot of MSF courses that will generally partner with a dealership and the dealership will provide the bikes. Mm -hmm. But not only that, but they'll generally have like a, a limited window discount on gear for those riders who took the class.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. We were all given lanyards with our names and the New Ryer's Academy logo and everything, and instructed explicitly to make sure we're wearing them at all times, so every employee of the dealership knew that we got a 15% discount only that weekend.
1: Ah, okay. I mean, it's not too bad. I mean, there are some things that they could throw in there as well. Like, one that comes to mind is just casually reminding people that motorcycles have to be insured
0: yeah uh there was zero talk of insurance throughout this entire thing zero talk about that let let me me go back to what i said so you get walked around all of this right right so through the service department no problem the sales floor was really quick they went through although the what was odd about the sales floor is that they did not make any mention of the Street Five Hundred Seven Fifty 750 or the 750S model or whatever it's called? It was, they didn't mention the Roadster, it was just, oh, here's the Sportster, great beginner bike. No mention of the difference between the 883 and the 1200. Then it was, oh, here you go, you got your trikes, you've got your soft tails, we've got a few dinas still hanging around. They showed some used models. Hey, here's a V rod. Those are super fast, but we don't really like those.
1: Hey, here's the big tourers. All of a sudden, it was a big deal, right? Did they mention the any of the Polaris stuff at all, or was it? I I only bring this up because I'm wondering. We walked through the, the
0: this dealership, what they called the metric side, right? <laughs> We walked okay. through that really quick, and it was like, okay, so you've basically got this sporty stuff here. We've got dirt bikes. Oh, you guys know what dirt bikes are. And the the saleswoman was just not versed at all in anything that didn't have a bar and shield on it. Didn't know any numbers about them. Wasn't really sure on the prices. Wasn't even really sure what to call a lot of the bikes. Definitely didn't know all the, the model names and all that sort of stuff. Let's
1: be real. We're kind of weird in that we can just rattle off all of these names. Well,
0: as soon as we sat down in the classroom, I opened the book, the MSF, the actual MSF book, and I sort of just said aloud to myself, I think it's a little sad that I can identify all of these pencil drawings, not just by make, but the model of the bike, and the year. (laughs) And the instructor was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, the, the sport bike they're showing here, that's a ZZR 600. It's not the one I used to have. It's actually the model after it, the one they did call the ZZR in this country. The model before it was called the ZZR overseas, but it was the ZXXE." 6 I started going, I'm like, that's a TU-250. There's a Ninja 250. Oh, there's a Goldwing. This is the touring bike of their show, right? <laughs> I'm just going through the whole list, and she's like, yeah, I only know about Harleys. Right? Um, so anyway, you get this hard sales pitch on everything. So one of the things we did on the first day, they're like passing around all this gear, right? Well, let me backtrack a bit. When we're going through the accessories department, they are just selling you stuff that says Harley Davidson on it, regardless of whether or not it's real safety gear. Because there's a lot of just fashion shit in the dealerships, right? And the, the accessories salesperson in charge of that department at one point actually suggested to one of the students that they should just wear their brain bucket instead of their full face helmet for the course so they could hear what the instructor is saying better. And that's when I started losing my mind. Why would you have a group of new riders and suggest anything but a real full face helmet? Even if it's just a DOT full face helmet, like whatever. You've got to be telling people, like, brand new, how can you, in any good conscience, suggest that anything other than a full face helmet is better? Th- there's no justification for that.
1: There's really not. There's not. I mean, that, and that is one of the things where, you know, I do like how in most of this country, and in most states, you know, there is no helmet law. But, yeah, as we've discussed before, we'll probably still think you're an idiot if you don't wear one.
0: I completely agree. But there
1: should not be a need... helmet
0: law. There should just be a lot of judging for not wearing a helmet.
1: Right. And from that perspective, every core should be just be pushing nonstop wear a full face helmet, wear nothing but a full face helmet, explain how much DOT sucks and how ECE or Snell are the real deal. And then after all of that, after all of that coaching, if they then decide they want a three-quarter helmet or they want to wear no helmet at all, then that's on them. But the course itself should be very heavily into full-face helmet all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I want to get into some positive
0: things here. First of all, the instructor was great. She did a very good job of getting across all the actual MSF information and still fulfilling her duties to Harley Davidson. And you could tell that there was a fine line that she had to tow to do that. Because if Harley had it their way, there would be no talk of safety. It would just be like, all right, let's teach the test. Let's get you through this so you can buy a bike. I mean, honestly, my opinion of Harley's opinion of safety is not very good. Like, as a company, Harley doesn't give a shit. So she was required to pass around all this gear at one point, and we're all, like, asked to hold this gear And then read a section in the MSF book and then describe the gear we're holding, right? One girl was just given a pair of sunglasses. And I'm just trying everything I can do to just not freak the fuck out. I just wanted to scream, why are we discussing anything but a full-face helmet? This is a safety class, right? Why? And and there are things she's required to say, whatever. And, uh, I, the, the gear I was given was rain gear, which was whatever. But then like, you know, some other guy had a helmet and he didn't have much to say about helmets. I sort of raised my hand. I was like, I've actually got a lot to say about helmets. (laughs) I'm kind of really into helmets. And she goes, okay. And I started talking about how like DOT is complete bullshit. It doesn't mean anything, whatever. And she actually chimed in and goes, he's correct. DOT is worthless guys. Like, honestly, if you like your face. If you like your head in general, you need to wear something that's ECE or Snell. And she rattled off ECE and Snell without anything. She you know, she knew her shit. Um, so that was interesting. And that kind of stuff appeared all over the place. Because we'd have to watch these videos. And we'd watch one that was clearly you know, supplied by MSF. And then there'd be a companion video right after it that was all Harley. I mean, the first video we watched was just a two-minute Harley-Davidson commercial, straight up. Which, you know, I don't blame them for trying to, you know, push their product within the class. But at some points it was definitely detracting from the safety information. Right. And that, I thought, was a little bullshit. So, moving on, I want to talk about some of the people in the class. And I won't mention anyone by name or anything like that. I
1: do want to put out one thing. It's kind of weird that they kind of were, were they like shying away from having anything safety related coming from Harley, or was it all just trying? To oh serve? yeah, if it was, if it
0: was a message explicitly about safety, it was detached from the Harley message.
1: That's really <laughs> weird because we all have this idea of what we're going to do and what we're being told to do. It's very strange that Harley would shy away from that message. Cause we all know like here are, here's the dotted line here, here are your boundaries. You're going to go past it, but you need to know where the official boundaries are. Cause you know, your, your limit is some, you know, is, is X amount past the official limit. Right. You know, Everyone drives 10 miles an hour of the speed limit. Doesn't fucking matter. Like, but the fact that it's not the speed that you actually want to, that you will go past that, you know, it's 65 so that you don't go over 75. And we all understand this. But it's so weird that in its own corporate culture, the company would just dissociate itself from safety altogether. Because you
0: shouldn't have to wear a helmet. It's all about freedom and Harley's about freedom, brother.
1: Right, that, but that's, that's that's the consumer culture, not the that's supposed to be the consumer culture, not the corporate culture. They are one and the same in Harley Davidson.
0: That's weird. That's really weird. Whether or not that's their official like position, that is hardcore the message that I got from it. Now there were a couple exceptionally awesome things about this. One is we had a cop in the class. Nice. Oh, so good. Cuz this is a guy this is a guy who had already done, you know, the whole police evasive driving, aggressive driving, you know, crazy stuff. The pursuit training. And in the summers, he already, you know, double duties as a a bicycle cop as well. So he did some advanced mountain bike training stuff as well. And a lot of that applied and really helped him. He he did really well in the practical side of all of it. I, I feel really good about him being on the road. And he was a solid dude. Like, I feel like he and I could hang out. He was really fun in just adding his two cents on some of this stuff. So uh when we're talking about like following distance and things like that he was like uh to be completely frank everything you're telling me is garbage a uh, 2 second following distance shouldn't even exist like 4 seconds is your minimum and he goes I'll tell you he goes I look 6 blocks 10 blocks down the road when I'm driving in my in my police car like th- like what you're saying Is really the bottom of the barrel in how much attention you should be paying in front of you. Because two seconds, like, whatever, you're dead. Huh. And yeah, yeah, that was really fun to listen to him explain everything and explain traffic dynamics and give a different, deeper level on the extra advanced training that he'd been given on that. That was really good. So we kind of, at that point, even though we all had to fill out everything as it was for MSF, whatever. We all kind of quietly agreed, yeah, this guy is the real answer over here. So right. that, was, that was really fun. And what was also fun was, um, so there was a, um, basically everyone else in the class was really green. There were a couple guys that had ridden for years when they were younger, and now they were coming back to it, and all their knowledge was garbage just completely so they would chime in with things that just made no sense and that was really great just to hear this complete insano view right the you know they i mean you name it when it comes to myths about riding, they had it like oh no you should use the rear brake more because you could go over the handlebars instructors like no that is not true there's not enough mass to throw you over the handlebars like get rid of that right And then, um, but also on my side, being more experienced, when um, lane splitting came up, I was like, lane splitting's awesome. And the cop and another girl who was uh, brand new to riding, she was actually the daughter of one of the mechanics at the dealership, were like, oh, we don't like it. No, 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 lane splitting, uh uh-uh, crazy dangerous, totally, totally, totally wrong. And then me and the instructor just sort of like, you know joined forces and we're like no 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 no. you have it completely wrong it's got a perception problem it's safer there are studies and she actually said as instructors as you know the msf or as a representative we support lane splitting and if it comes up for legislation we will back it no question it's absolutely better and then at one point i kind of said to the cop i was like look there have been situations where um well, at first, I admitted that freely in Denver, I was just lane splitting left and right in bad traffic, no problem. And I've actually stopped doing it because the public's not used to it and they don't know how to handle it. And because they perceive it as being extremely unfair and a personal attack on them, drivers, I've noticed, have started doing things when I lane split that create unsafe situations for me. So now I've actually readjusted to I only lane split when I am not comfortable with how the person behind me is breaking.
1: Um, yeah, and I'll I'll do it then as well. Um, the main thing I do is I will I do I really don't do a lot of lane splitting, but I'll do it in situations where it's like, oh. There's 10 cars in front of me that are all making a left turn, but it's a two-lane road. I'm just going to roll up the side so that I can turn right. And, you know, like, pulling into my apartment complex. Often, traffic will get backed up on that road going up to the intersection. So you
0: essentially just behave like a bicycle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When it's like, uh, I'm going, you know, 200 feet to make one turn. And then it turns into a situation where, you know, even if somebody gets pissed off seeing me roll by them, they see they can still see me just turn and it's like, oh, he didn't do anything to affect me whatsoever. And I almost kind of feel like that that like adds some positivity to it. It should,
0: but don't underestimate how much just
1: just getting in front of
0: a line in America of any kind sends people
1: insane. And that's where that's where I think in the marketing for it it needs to be explained that they're not cutting into the line. It's a different line. Right. It's a whole new line. Uh-huh. And it's making your line shorter. Exactly. But people don't get that. They just see like,
0: well, why does he get to go? That's unfair. I, I've been waiting here first. And that's just the way. Something I've always said about Americans in, like, the world setting is, as much as Americans like to think that it's all about freedom and it's my way or the highway, Americans have a ridiculously strong sense of fair play. Like, try waiting in line at a McDonald's in Italy. It is every man for themselves, right? (laughs) Like it is lawless. It is a lawless wasteland where a man must make his own justice. Right? It it fair play does not come into the equation, and Americans are really strong on this. The difference between like Euro Disney and American Disney with those lines. Whoa, they are more than a few Disney worlds apart. (laughs) So, anyway, uh, I want to. I want to skip skip forward to um probably the biggest highlight of the whole thing right so it's um it's the sec so we we uh, the weather was really cold so we front-loaded all of the class stuff and the second half was just purely all of the practical stuff right we didn't get on any bikes until all of the the the, the tests and all that stuff was done so we get out onto the bikes right now two of the seven of us dropped out One guy, he wouldn't admit it, but he dropped out because he was actually too out of shape to do the test. Not even the test, just the exercises to prepare you for the test.
1: That's interesting, because I'm not a small guy, but I feel like I could wear, like, a 100-pound weight vest and still... Passed the basic rider's course. Well,
0: this is a guy that said he was in the class because he sold his Goldwing in 90 something. He bought an Ultra Limited or whatever, great big Harley Tour, full bagger. And he dropped it at a stop sign and blamed that on the camber of the road. Yeah, and then he said his son took his bike away and said he couldn't have it back until he passed the course. Which, big applause to his son. (laughs) Because this guy had no business operating a motorcycle on public roads and maybe any motor vehicle. Um, Another guy had a very similar story to his, but um, started pretty shaky. But by the end of it, um, actually had some good control of the bike, and I was fine with that. Um, But the absolute highlight of the whole thing was um the girl who's the daughter of the mechanic flipped a street 500 at 19 miles an hour. I was so proud of her. It was a, it was amazing. It was one of the the best like traffic like uh, like vehicle accidents I've ever seen in my life. It was so satisfying and it was and she was totally fine. She was totally fine. She Wait, when you say flipped, what do you mean? Oh, a bike completely went over itself. It was impressive. High-sided it, or...? So so we're doing the peanut. Anyone that's in the MSF course knows the peanut. It's a little racetrack sort of exercise they have you do, right? So everyone's going around. Everyone's getting more comfortable. And so she comes into this turn... And these bikes had limiters on them, so in first gear you could do 22, in second gear you could do about 24, 25, maybe 26 tops, right? So she's coming in, and she's in first gear, and she's kind of at the limit of first gear, and, you know, this is her first time really on a bike, like, really doing these things. She comes in too hot, and she just grabs a big handful of front brake. Ah, okay. And she loses the front. So she falls off, you know, the bike essentially low side, she loses the front, she falls down, right, and she just sort of slides next to the bike, but because the bike has ridiculous crash bars all around it, right, and she doesn't have the experience to just sort of let the bike go, she's sort of fighting herself going down on it, right, Mm -hmm. the bike just sort of rattles against the ground, right, And it, like, sort of dances over her and then bounces back and flips again on the other (laughs) way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The most spectacular crash that has ever happened below 20 miles per hour. I swear to God. (laughs) Happened right in front of me. And so I saw her go down. But once she actually, like, did let go of the bike, she just kind of, like, slid a foot or two. And the bike went in a different direction. She was absolutely fine. And I knew she was fine. You could just sort of tell she was
1: fine. Well, you know when people are generally fine. Because they immediately get up. She actually didn't do that. She was so stunned. She was actually motionless
0: for a moment. Uh, but she did like start getting up. And of course the instructor runs over. And does all the proper stuff that she absolutely should have done. And have her lay still. And check everything. Fingers, toes, and all that sort of stuff. And then she gets up. And I walk over to her and I'm like, high fives, come on, come on, high fives. (laughs) And and everyone thinks I'm being this big dickhead. And I was like, well, no, see, here's the thing. This is going to happen to all you guys as well. She just got it out of the way in the safest possible environment for it. Right? You know, there's two kinds of riders. Those have gone down and those haven't gone down yet, right? And and I know that's a cliche, but it really is true. At some point, everyone makes some sort of really dumb mistake. Even if it's low stakes, everyone does something stupid. Everyone at least drops a bike in their driveway. Or you know something low speed, a little low a little something. You know, and anyone says, Oh, I've been riding thirty six years, never had anything. Yeah, I that guy's full of bullshit. And so my my thing was, like, you know, way to find the limit. Like, you just learned the most valuable lesson you can about breaking in a corner. Like, there it is. Like, you know, you have some sort of idea now of what that limit is and how easy it is to find it. And you have a much better way to approach finding that limit on your front brake in that situation.
1: I'll also add, I think it's actually kind of important for everyone riding a bike to crash it at least once. And that I may say I can't sound, totally disagree. And that may sound like a silly thing to say, but the thing is, especially if you start riding young, like if you get a motorcycle at 18 or 19 and like a proper street bike, mm-hmm. and you just you get to ride around, it's similar to getting your driver's license at sixteen where everyone driving their car you know, everyone driving a car for the first time has that sense of teenage invulnerability yeah and it's only until their first major fuck up it suddenly gets real yeah and you need to have that same experience on a bike but it's through a different set of inputs and having you know understanding that anxiety of of locking up the front and washing out and or losing the rear and low siding or having somebody pull out in front of you all of a sudden you need to have that experience and it can be both you know a reality check but also it need part what makes a lot of riding really fun Not not really fun. I don't think that's the right word. Exhilarating. Yeah. Is an element of that risk. A visceral connection to the edge. Yeah. And if you don't know, if you have no idea of what the limits are, or what the consequences might be, then it's like playing a video game with cheats on. Yeah. It, there's no satisfaction to it. Well, it was really valuable for everyone else in
0: the class to see her go down. Right. Because I, by this point, I would sort of demonstrated to the instructor enough that I knew what was going on. So she was sort of allowing me not to take over her role in any way, but I could sort of speak freely On some subjects, and she would just kind of go like, yeah, he's not full of shit, you know? She would acknowledge that at this point. And so when I said, like, you know, this can happen to you, and probably will, or very likely could, you know, they all sort of, like, sharpened up. And they were all a little shaken anyway, because it's like, look, shit can go down at 19 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Like, but, you know, I wasn't too worried about her, because she was—she and I— were the only ones wearing full gear. She had a, a jacket on with armor in it, the lowest grade armor a jacket will come with, but still something you know above just a general like fashion leather jacket that most people wear, right? Mm-hmm. And she had a full face helmet on. It was a modular helmet, so it wasn't you know safety rated or anything, but whatever. But the the instructor pointed out very quickly after she got up she said look at the scratch on her helmet and it was right on the chin yeah and i was like that helmet just paid for itself 10 times over and she was like damn right it did not not the girl the instructor said it paid for itself and you know that was sort of a wake up moment for everyone around and especially the cop you know he was just like oh yeah you know cuz he'd been sort of he he was taking it all very seriously but you know, a few of them were starting to get this attitude of, like, oh, well, we're learning stuff that, like, you know, we probably won't use in the real world, And uh, to which my response was, like, what are you talking about? These are the basic techniques. Yeah, I've been using all of these every time I ride for somewhere between 10 and 15 years. Like, what are you talking about? You're never going to use this stuff in the real world. And then when shit got real at 19 miles an hour. That was a really, I don't know, but that's, you know, I, I've gone down a few times and I, I sort of existed in that space. And, you know, I, I'm sort of more familiar and a little bit more, you know, I'm not going to say comfortable, but I I have more experience and knowledge with the possible consequences than they had. So, it was easier for me to be a little bit more, you know, talk freely in that moment about what happened and why it was actually a plus that it happened in that controlled situation, you know? Mm-hmm. But what if it happened on the street and she slid out in front of another car or, you know, the car didn't hit her, but the bike smashed into a car and it made the, that car smash into another car and then three kids die or whatever, you know? At 19 miles an hour, shit can get real. It has for me, you know, uh, there was a great moment in the class where we had to, like, you know, come up with a crash situation and then list of the factors, you know, that happened in this imaginary class whatever. So I got up there and just diagrammed one of my own crashes. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, so this may or may not be based on real events, guys. (laughs) Based on a true story.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Another thing I did, though, was um, at least halfway through all the class stuff, I really just started shutting the fuck up because I was just giving a lot of right answers to everything. And I realized, wait a minute, I'm robbing everyone in this class who's completely new from the experience of running the mental exercise, saying something, potentially getting it wrong and learning the correct thing. Right. It does not do me any good just to keep raising my hand and giving all the right answers. Right. Like, I have to share the road with these people. I want them to be good riders. So I just started shutting the fuck up. And it only got, and it was only when it got to like really hard stuff. She like looked at me and go, All right, experienced guy, like, what's the answer? I was like, Oh, it's actually the, you know, but. I don't know. Overall, it actually was a positive experience, but I can't tell you that you should th- there is no actual advantage overtaking the Harley one. Just take any other basic MSF course and what you'll get is the actual information and there won't be any of the Harley selling stuff on top of it to distract you from the real information you should be getting.
1: Well, I will I will also add You know, you don't need to go, you probably don't, from what I hear, it sounds like you don't really need to go out of your way if that's really the closest one you're going to find and it makes the most sense to you in practicality. Um, Because really, you know, I had a few people in my class who were very similar, but instead of being Harley guys, they were guys that already had, you know, super sports and leader bikes gifted to them but they weren't allowed to ride. They weren't going to get the keys until they finished the MSF course. And they were just kind of like, okay, I just need to get through this and I get my bike. You know, it doesn't matter what course you do, you know, the course, if you are prepared and if you have the correct mindset, and if you're willing to accept that once you, you know, it's kind of like alcohol and alcoholics anonymous. Like you have to accept, you know, that you are helpless and you know nothing and you need a greater power to guide you you know if you if you're just trying to get through it just get through the course you're you're in for a world of hurt and there the was fact the fact that you just passed the course isn't going to be good enough to keep you safe during a lifetime of riding you need to you need to understand that well, first you need to be humble and get through the basics and pass the course. And then you also have to accept that the actual the actual rule book and the training for riding on the street is endless. And that if you just assume that you know everything because you passed the course, you're 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 in for a world of hurt. So as long as you approach the class with the right attitude, get through it, and continue to learn, then then you'll be fine. And it doesn't matter if it's the Harley course or not.
0: Yeah, the only thing that was, like, really useful about the little leather book they gave me to write things down in was at one point they asked in the beginning to write down some goals. One was to find a bad habit and break it. And I found that in my three-finger versus four-finger breaking. Because after, like, like, seven exercises, you know, like, I come to, like, an emergency stop, and the instructor's like, that was really good, and I was like, well, except I only did it with three fingers, and she goes, oh, I, I'm not going to change your habits, I'm really glad that you're looking out for it, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, credit to her for being realistic, but also, you know, still acknowledging that, that I was working on that, even though there was, like, zero expectation for me to
1: Actually, I'll th- uh, I'll throw one out myself right now. Was that now that I've got the Norge and I have torque on demand, uh-huh. I have a really bad habit of pulling away from traffic lights in third gear. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But
0: I also like you know wrote down um, you know try to discover a uh, a skill that I thought I was completely proficient on. And improve that. I also listed wheelie a street five hundred as one of my goals, <laughs> <laughs> which turns out was not possible because of the limiter they put on them in second and third gear, and those bikes are just so terrible the way they're set up for the course. You can't even get into third gear the way the course is set up. It's just not even not even doable. I mean, you, okay, technically you can, but. You're not in a way that's going to make you go any faster. Than it's just impossible to get out of second gear the way it's set up on the street 500s.
1: What about burnouts?
0: I was pretty sure that was going to get me, like, kicked out of the class. That's fair. And I was, I was, I was trying to, in my quiet way, supplement a few things that the instructor was saying in a very mild, quiet way on the side. You know, I I was saying things to the guys like, well, you know, after this, I said one thing that I do and some we've talked about in the podcast is, you know, here's a great list of YouTube channels that are hosted by MSF teachers. And I watch these videos and I practice these things in traffic and it's a great way to make normal traffic a lot more fun to constantly be monitoring yourself and like, oh, is this the technical thing I'm supposed to be doing in this situation? It can take a really boring commute and make it more interesting. I was telling them things like that. And I will admit, I did try to give it a wheelie when we were doing the, uh, the, the, the ride over the, the two by fours thing, because <laughs> yeah. the instructor did admit that she was okay with small wheelies on that segment, but I there was a, the bike was incapable of it. It just was not doable.
1: Yeah, I can see that. When I saw the bike in person, which I saw, I only really saw, um, you know, I I had seen a Street Five Hundred before, you know, before I did my street 500 is the worst motorcycle in the world right that week um but really um with you there and just because uh, i you know i had seen one but it was like okay whatever but actually getting up close and looking at it there's so many more points that make this bike awful to me oh yeah well as like, we discussed in the last episode
0: it's too low It's the only thing I'll give it is an excellent turning radius. That's it. That Mm. is it. That is the only reason that bike can even be used for the MSF course. In every other way, a Nighthawk 250 is completely superior.
1: Well, it also does the number one thing that I hate most in a motorcycle. What's that? It lies. It does. The fake the fake convection fins on the yeah. cylinders yeah, cause it's like, liquid
0: cool and is pretending to be air cooled and oh it's it's terrible it is a garbage motorcycle it feels cheap it's just bullshit anyway all right we've talked for quite a while about <laughs> this let's move on to best worst bike in the world all right okay are you ready i am ready Let's go. All right, and you've got Worst Bike, right? Yep. Okay, then the worst bike in the world is?
1: The Kawasaki KLX 250.
0: Okay, so the KLX 250. On the surface, this doesn't really look all that offensive to me, so what's going on here?
1: Okay, so here's the thing. You know, there's lots of people... If you, uh, well, let me lay out what this bike is to start with. Okay. This is a 250cc thumper, dual sport. Pretty basic, but street legal. Comes with 50 50 tires.
0: Electric start, liquid cool, Mm -hmm. four stroke. Yeah. Okay. What's the, I'm not seeing the problem yet.
1: Okay. Here's the thing you know how everyone. You know how there's lots of people who will say, you know, well, especially even the Harley guys, you know, they'll say, what are you going to get a real bike? And they're going to say, oh, you're, you're starting on 250? You're going to grow out of that really fast. Yeah. This is the 250 you're legitimately going to grow out of really fast.
0: <laughs> okay. Is this making pathetic power or something? Or Oh, uh,
1: okay. Here's the thing. So if you look at the stats... Somehow, at 11 to 1 compression, it is making 21.5 horsepower and 15 foot-pounds of torque. Wait a second. 15?
0: 15. That's... Okay, that's really low. That is like the whole dirt bike thing. Lower horsepower, sure,
1: but... Bottom-end torque. Bottom-end torque. You gotta be able to dig out of those corners. Right. Right. And here's the thing. If you go to Kawasaki's website and look at the marketing for this bike, uh-huh. they expound on the fuel efficiency of this motorcycle. Who
0: gives a shit about the fuel efficiency of a dirt bike? Exactly. Only in the very niche category of super motoring a dirt bike, are you at all concerned? And in episode one, I was like, "Well, I mean, that Yamaha is only getting like uh, what, like high thirties in in fuel efficiency? Is that really going to be good enough for the road?" What, like th- so, that is the level you can be getting sub forty on a motorcycle these days, and it's still not a big deal
1: for a dirt bike. Right. Now, here's the thing. The price of this bike is $5,350 MSRP, which is cheap, but it's not that cheap for what it is. And you can definitely get a lot better used with twice the torque and twice the horsepower on a similar platform,
0: oh, you can get a WR 400, not even the 450, for two grand with hardly any use. Twelve hundred dollars. Yeah,
1: like okay. Now here's here's what I think this bike is. Does
0: this come with a road title?
1: Yes. Okay. Now here's the thing. The way this bike is priced and what it does is, this is cheap enough to get you in the door and set you up for your first bike, and be able to grow out of it quickly, and want to spend some real money on a DRZ. And this is this is this bike is made is designed to make you cry twice. Right. That's what it is. I'd also like to point out that this bike did not go fuel-injected until 2016. Yeah, that's a bit of a...
0: You know, Kawasaki was really lazy with their dirt bikes for a long time. It's only... I They still really are. Um, I mean, I, sport bikes, high performance is where Kawasaki lives. They do not do well in this smaller engine practical category of any kind of bike
1: but to put it in perspective for $6,500 except for the Ninja 250 300
0: yeah. th- those are awesome
1: but beyond that they're good but keep in mind for a KLR 650 you can you oh let me put that another way you can buy a KLR 650 for like $6,800 dollars Right. Yeah. What's that? An extra like
0: $13 a month on your payments or whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why would you? And it's not, and I, you know, I think the KLR 650 is just fine as an intro bike as well. Provided you feel comfortable with the height of it and everything. Cause it is pretty tall. Uh, beyond that. I mean, there's no reason that's an unmanageable bike for a new rider. Right. And it also still has some thrills in its like ridiculous utilitarian nature for the more experienced rider that really wants to get it out into the middle of nowhere, too.
1: Right. Now, in this package, if this was a junior dirt bike, and they had found some way to make it street legal, and it was kind of the bike that you gave to your 16-year-old because you live on a farm and you're 50 miles out of town and your kid needs transportation but he also has shit to do around the farm okay that kind of makes sense but it's the way it's priced and for what it is it's it seems almost exploitative yeah 13 you said 13 foot pounds of torque
0: 15 foot 15 pound. foot pounds of, okay so this this is i that's royal enfield bullet 500 less than bullet 500 torque like this this is the definition of couldn't pull a greasy man out of bed won't pull a drunk off your sister kind of torque yeah <laughs> <laughs> like
1: like <laughs> two Again, on a a three-quarter size bike, I could understand it. Two medium-sized dudes
0: and a thin piece of rope, after depleting a full 30 rack of beer, will hold this thing in place at full power.
1: Yeah. Maybe even just one big dude. I mean, really what they've done is they've got a low-revving, high-compression motor that they've absolutely trashed with the the gear ratio. So the mechanical advantage of this motor is way too much for the power it's putting out. I gotcha. Because they want to make it more
0: streetable, but it ends up being extremely shitty at both. Yeah. Cause, yeah, because the, the, the 250 dual-sport sort of thing doesn't work very well, except for the 250 Tenere.
1: Yeah, so they just said, okay, well, it's a 250. The 250 Tenere
0: was making over 20 in torque. I'm sure it was.
1: Wasn't it a 300?
0: No, no, no the The Tenere 250. I mean, I was making 21 Newton meters, so I don't know what that is in torque.
1: Oh, uh, this is actually similar... Numbers. Yeah, but
0: the, the Super Tenere is also ridiculously light, and...
1: Yeah, and the, the Super Tenere is 300 pounds, and this thing is...
0: The Super Tenere is also only 9.5 to 1 compression, and pulls off the same numbers. <laughs> and it's got... Cool shit with all the computer systems, and it's got the ceramic
1: coated cylinders and all of oh, that. Oh, this is also three hundred pounds.
0: Okay, so what we're talking about is under engineering. Um, why does it need to have that much stress on the motor to only make that power? Right, it's outdated. Like, how long has has um, Kawasaki probably been running this motor? You're probably running a 1980s motor. Yeah. Whereas the Super Tenere with that lower compression making the same power, same weight bike, also a more capable bike designed to do more adventury things. Why, you know, about the same price point? Why would you go for this when? Well, and okay, the 250 Tenere is not available here, so you can't go for the 250 Tenere. But again, that's the bullshit that we get in these alternative bikes in the States. It's just garbage. There's no reason to buy this. Also, the styling, I want to talk about that. Let's bring up the KLX again. Okay, first of all, in this picture we're looking at, the 90s the styles decals are near and dear to my heart, but not going to connect with the public in general. <laughs> Right, this does take some notes from like a '93 CBR600 <laughs> in in the way that the decals are on it. This is like K L X on it, and like what can only describe be described as the monster font, <laughs> and um, and it's got the fake scratches across it and everything, and it, it is at least in Kawasaki green. And it's got you know the the uh, the 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 Kawasaki purple seats that I love. I haven't talked about that enough and how much I love about nineties Kawasaki the crazy purple seats. Quietly a trademark that they don't really hype up enough. But um, beyond that, um, the the wheels look the wrong size on this. Like I don't know what the front size wheel is. But
1: Those are pretty standard.
0: No, you want a bigger front wheel on these bikes. And these look like they might be the same size, like full diameter wheel. No, it's bigger. Is it just the angle of the picture? Yeah. Anyway, it's definitely not the difference in tire size that you'd normally get on these bikes. But, whatever. The thing about it,
1: it's got... And I would say, like that front disc is pathetic, but it's actually perfectly appropriate for the amount of power this bike is yeah. making. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's why it's
0: the worst bike in the world. It doesn't justify a better brake. Yeah, it's it just doesn't even expect you to do anything that justifies the better. I mean, I
1: would almost say it would make. That's more... the
0: first time we've run into this situation. You cannot complain about this bike's brakes, and you could never expect it to be anymore, because there's no justification for
1: it. I mean, it would this bike would almost make more sense if it had 17 or 18 horsepower, and... Wait, what could, is the horsepower? 21 and a half. Okay, alright, alright. But it would almost make more sense if it was like 18 horsepower, and... It got up to 18 foot-pounds of torque.
0: So, really, we've nailed what this bike is without realizing it. It's a Tenere 250 that you can't actually adventure, because it has no ability to strap anything to it to take with you. And it doesn't have the... It's got an outdated motor that probably doesn't have the modern tech and reliability that the Tenere 250 has.
1: Right. The only thing that will make you think that you cannot ride this bike to its limits is the fact that you're, at some point, you're going to have 50-50 tires on the street. Yeah. That's the only thing that's going to make you think you can't push this bike to its limits. Yeah, I'm
0: not really that well-versed in the world of dirt bikes and enduros and all that stuff, but... I am, even with my limited knowledge in that sector, I'm aware there are way better options than this.
1: Well, even then, like... Even
0: new, even there are way better at, options.
1: At 300 pounds, there are a lot of one two fives that make more sense off-road than this does when you think about the torque-to-weight ratio. Yeah. Okay. All right, cool. Um, We got anything else to say
0: about it? Uh, I think I've made my case. There we go. Bullshit Enduro. At least it comes in green with the purple seeds. <laughs> okay. And now, the best bike in the world. I'm pretty excited about this one. I'm going to get animated. All right, so the best bike in the world this week is... The 1959 Honda Super Cub. Ooh. So, the Honda Super Cub is and has basically always been since the mid-60s, not just the best-selling motorcycle in the world, which I always knew it was. It's actually the best-selling vehicle in the world. Like, hands down, it nothing's even close. They have sold over a hundred million of these, and it's largely unchanged from the 1959 model. They've given it telescopic forks, they've made it, um, CDI ignition.
1: Wait, it's still? Still. When do they stop selling it?
0: They still sell this everywhere. Wait, what? Yeah. So, it, now, this does include a, a couple different flavors of it, everywhere from 50 cc's to about 125, but it's the Super Cub in general. The, the only difference is, is the displacement of the motor. Now... In continuous manufacture since 1958, so says the Wikipedia, surpassing 60 million in 2008 and surpassing 100 million in 2017. So it's actually only gotten more popular. I did not know that. This thing is so fucking crazy awesome and high selling that Honda can't make enough of them and licenses it to be manufactured and sold by no less than 13 other manufacturers because Honda itself cannot even make enough to supply the demand.
1: Wait, so who else is making... If you
0: were traveling at this exact moment, I don't care if you're listening to this podcast half an hour from now, six years from now, if you were traveling by motor vehicle... There's a larger chance you're on a Honda Super Cub than anything else. Forget the Volkswagen Beetle, the Rover Mini, the Ford F-150. I don't care. This way more people are getting around on this right now worldwide. And it's got, honestly, some kind of cool things about it. So you can get it in a few different flavors, anywhere from 50 cc's up to 110 or 125 or whatever it goes by a lot of different names the cub the super cub the dream the ex5 the c100 the super cub 110 there's all sorts of different names but it's all essentially the same bike if you saw the episode of mad men where they're riding a little like scooter really looking thing around the office that's the super cub this thing is what made honda before the Super Hawk, before the CB750, before a whole lot of other things, this bike solidified Honda as one of the major manufacturers worldwide. And there was a time when America was in love with this bike as well. So let's go back in time. We're going to go back to 1957, all right? Now, in 1957, Honda had nothing going on in the American market. Just absolutely nothing. And they thought, well, we need to explore other things. And they looked at the Southeast Asian market, because it was very close to them, obviously. And they looked at America, and the head of... um. Well, their senior managing director said, well, we've got to go overseas. He thought, well, America's not really that big a market. And it wasn't. And in all honesty, America is still not a very big market for motorcycles worldwide. And Saturo Honda said, no, we've got to get America because it's a status symbol. I know we're not going to make that much money selling bikes in America. Even if we become as big as Harley Davidson, we won't make that much money selling bikes in America, honestly. But we've got to do it, he said, because it's a status symbol. So they sent like their, like one of their like major directors moved to California and they asked the the Japanese government because there were like a bunch of restrictions and post war things on money moving or whatever, and they were like denied, denied, denied a bunch of times on taking like a huge sum of money for them at that time, and moving it in currency and setting up this operation in America. And the Japanese government was like, no, dame, dame, dame. <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, eventually, they got approved to take. About a hundred and fifty thousand dollars overseas, and they spent half of that no well no not well I think it's like a hundred and fifty thousand dollars in like today's money or something, and they spent like most of it, and what they did was they bought a camera store wait they bought just a storefront, a camera store, and they just started shipping over like what they had. And the best bike they had was the Honda Super Cub, the, and just the 50cc model, right? So Honda was already the largest motorcycle manufacturer in Japan by far, and starting to like make international moves. And Honda America was started in like an 800 square foot camera store, and with their head of like marketing running it. And, like, another guy from Honda. And then they just hired a bunch of, like, California teenagers to be sales guys. Whoa. And they spent a year just trying to sell these bikes. And, of course, being, like, Japanese and Honda, they're like, we will sell 1,000 motorcycles a month. <laughs> yeah. And the first month they sold, like, 80. Right? But being Honda, they were not going to give up. And they kept going at it. So after a year, they're like, well... We need some bigger bikes, and they started working on like the Dream and the you know the two fifties and the the three hundred five models and all that. But really, they were having some uh, quality issues bringing them over. So they actually dropped everything except for the Super Cub in nineteen fifty nine, right? And in nineteen fifty nine, they still didn't sell much. I mean, they got to a few hundred a month. They were making progress, and then. In 1960, 1961, they purchased a marketing idea off a college student at like Berkeley. And that marketing strategy was you meet the nicest people on a Honda. Oh. And they poured untold amounts of money into this national campaign because. A lot of people told them that, well, you should get an outside company for distribution for you. You should get an international distribution company to get these bikes. And Suchiro Honda and um, uh, Fujisawa, the guy, the, their head marketing guy that actually moved to California to essentially just work in this small-time dealership to get an American Honda off the ground, said, like, no, 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 no. We're going to do it our way, and we're going to do it with extreme oversight And we're going to have huge aftermarket support because at this time in America, motorcycle dealerships were awful places, just dusty, grimy, awful places with grease monkeys walking around selling you bikes. I mean, there weren't salespeople or anything like that. And your choices were the very limited... American manufacturers after the war and they sometimes sold British bikes too. And that was it. And hell's angels and bikers and all that stuff was already a thing. And motorcycles are not seen as practical transportation. They weren't seen as reliable. They weren't seen as something any respectable person would do. Right now looking at the worldwide market, Honda understood that southeast asia was exploding everyone was getting around by bicycle and they really wanted to be getting around by scooter and moped all the european scooter and moped um manufacturers were moving into asia and other countries and doing really well and they're like holy shit this is our wheelhouse we need to be in on this if we can be the shit in america we will just stomp the shit out of vespa and lambretta and all those other makes in southeast asia And this is how we need to go. So, you know, people know about the you meet the nicest people on a Honda campaign. But I don't think people really understand how revolutionary it is. If you have a marketing degree, you studied you meet the nicest people on a Honda. It is absolute marketing degree, like college coursework case study required learning it was so effective that without any input from honda the beach boys wrote a song about how you meet the nicest people on a honda wait i have not heard this it's kind of amazing (laughs) and um so honda created a band called the hondells which recorded and released it and then Brian Wilson, after that, released his own original version, which sold more copies. Whoa. Yes. That's how big this was. Honda went from a camera store turned into a motorcycle dealership in 1959 to in 1961, selling the most motorcycles in the country by far and they were 50 cc honda super cubs they went for it and people went for it it was fun it was easy to ride so is this i'm just
1: looking at this black and white photograph you're showing on the on the web on the page i love how it's American Honda Motor. It's like, well, Honda Motor, they're gonna think that's Japanese and the Americans really don't like Japanese right now. Oh yeah. This like, was when everyone well, hang on. was like, No, oh, no, Japanese I've got, it. I've got is it. garbage. It's like, I've got it. American Honda Motor.
0: Yeah, and for yes. all <laughs> these people that think like Japanese bikes don't have the heritage or whatever. Forget Honda. American Honda has existed since 1959. Continuously. All right. How many years has Indian motorcycles existed as any single name? 30,
1: maybe. Realistically, the only company and what,
0: 45 years they've existed in total throughout all the different ownerships that they've had.
1: Really, the the only company in America that has a longer unbroken uh, heritage is Harley. But Moto Guzzi is not far. No, in fact, no. Moto Guzzi is probably about the same age or older. Moto uh, 20, oh, is
0: 1929. Was it twenty nine? I think it's 1929's Moto oh. Well, Harley's it's it's, it's it way pre war. But yeah, but. But Harley never sold more than like twenty motorcycles a month until like the yeah, thirties
1: like, they
0: play up a lot of like the harley Davidson like nineteen o nine or nineteen o five or whatever they they pick and choose what year it started based on how they wanna advertise whatever anniversary model right
1: yeah yeah and, well also i think I think if you're going pre war i mean if you if you're talking about pre war and post war in relative terms at this point, it's kind of like claiming that you you're the older brother out of a set of twins because you came out of the womb first, you know, a couple minutes before your sibling. It's well, like
0: And the, the okay. Honda story is more impressive because it's in spite of its post war image, right? Right. In nineteen fifty nine, people hated the shit out of the Japanese. They bombed Pearl Harbor, and they're setting up in California, not far away, and also well, you know, geographically like, they,
1: very far away,
0: I know, but, but culturally, not that far anyway, yeah. so and people are like, well, they lost the war. They can't make anything, right? Japan did not have its reputation for high build quality at this point, not at all, and Sachura so Honda was so aware of this. That like their Benleys and a whole bunch of the smaller bikes and whatever the bikes weren't up to standard. And they took something like 80% of everything that they had. And this is after they'd started, they'd moved past the camera store and they had like a network of dealerships Mm -hmm. going and they shipped it all back to Japan because they said, we are not going to sell inferior product. Um, these bikes had some known uh, mechanical problems that were becoming apparent. They sent them all back, they fixed them, and then they brought them back at huge loss. Um, uh, Honda America was the first motorcycle dealers, dealers in the United States to provide ongoing um, support after you bought the motorcycle. If you bought a Harley in the 50s, then you were on your own. There was no support for that vehicle after you bought it. Honda was the first. And this bike, the the Super Cub, was the one that made it. Because the bike that didn't have any defects, their flagship that they could really rally around, was the Super Cub. And it was just supremely economical. It was $250 in 1960-something. It was affordable for students and whatever. This bike is so good. That in nineteen eighty something, two editors from Motorcycle or Cycle News or Cycle Magazine—I can't remember which one—took one and edit- entered it in the Craig Vetter fuel efficiency competition, stock, and achieved a hundred and ninety-eight miles per gallon. What? Wait, in what year? Nineteen eighty something. Like before, while the bike was still unmodified from its original 1950s version, admittedly through very gentle throttle control (laughs) at an average speed of about 35 miles per hour, but they achieved that and won. Yeah. This bike, like I said, it's only received telescopic forks, CDI. And in some places now, it has to be available with fuel uh, 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 fuel injection for emissions. And mm-hmm. otherwise, exact same bike. If you're on a motorized vehicle right now, it's probably a Super Cub. This was like the world's introduction to Honda and the nice people in the Hondas. And it is a legacy that remains to this day and is more relevant than it's ever been cuz they just they just keep selling more and more and more of them SYM makes these things under license Kimco I mean everybody it's nuts this is the most popular motorcycle in the world and for good reason Wait, it's when you say Kimco solid, makes, when
1: you say Kimco makes it like everything from scratch or
0: I'm not aware on exactly all of those details, but loads of people make this under license from Honda. Because it's that good. And Honda just can't even make enough of them. They just can't. Honda doesn't give a shit that you aren't buying CBR600s. They don't give a flying fuck. They're making way more money selling these things. This is a family vehicle for some people. Like Mm. This is a practical means of transportation day in and day out like there's a lot of people listening to this podcast right now that think they're real riders and they don't have shit on just some dude who's 18 in vietnam that rides the shit out of his honda super cub in crazy traffic every day and really knows how to fucking ride (laughs) and that's why it's the best bike in the world this week maybe forever
1: yeah, I think that's fair. Okay, yeah, no objections. All right, let's take a little break. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, and we're back. Um, kind of like the <laughs> the last episode. Um, I'm not quite done actually talking about the Super Cup. There's one thing I left out that um really jumped out at me when I was looking up things about this bike. Um. So, there's this thing here on the website, uh, the Honda website, on their, their own history that they give, where they say, you know, Fujizawa considered the suggestion for a moment, then turned and gave a firm reply, quote, on second thought, he said, let's do America. After all, America is the stronghold of capitalism and the center of the world's economy. To succeed in the US is to succeed worldwide. On the other hand, if a product doesn't become a hit in America, it'll never be a hit internationally. To take up the challenge of the American market may be the most difficult thing to do, Fujisawa concluded, but it's a critical step in expanding the export of our products. So that's really important because they didn't consider the American market as a very big market. Well, they didn't consider
1: it as a profitable market.
0: right. Though it did turn out to be, but not nearly as much as other places. But one of the reasons they thought it was such a challenge and a thing to take on is that motorcycles are not perceived as a very practical form of transportation here. And so that whole you meet the nicest people on a Honda thing was all about getting people into the lifestyle of motorcycles Motorcycles was purely a Hells Angels sort of thing until Honda, right? Right. There was no such thing as your neighbor has a bike before Honda in America. Honda has – Honda defined motorcycles in America. Make no mistake. It was – Harley Davidson would not be as successful as it is today Without the marketing that Honda did to get the public into the idea that they don't have to be a biker to ride a motorcycle, really. And what's really sort of confusing is that Harley at the time was super pissed off at the you meet the nicest people on a Honda thing. And this is where the whole Harley versus import bikes culture comes from. Harley took a really, really aggressive stance at the time in reaction to You Meet the Nicest People on a Honda. They're like, well, are you implying that our riders are assholes? And frankly, they were. But Harley took major exception to this. And to this day, pretty much holds an official slash unofficial anything that ain't a Harley is crap attitude in response.
1: That's interesting. I, I've actually heard it the other way before in that a lot of the non-Harley culture, which is a weird thing to say, yeah. <clears throat> but that's kind of that. That's that how is, it is in America. That's that just, is yeah. the perspective in America. Um, Started the other way in that it was a Harley Davidson was a very common kind of middle and upper class motorcycle and a lot of the the Japanese motorcycles and a lot of, and a lot of the British motorcycles really kind of started out in California oh yeah they all did and it kind of worked its way across and you know, throughout the 60s and the 70s, you know, Harley was kind of considered the face of corporate America and the the upper class, and it was sort of a culture war between Harley and everybody else. It still is to
0: this day, I think. Harley versus everyone else, as far as the American market is concerned. Mm-hmm. But what I want to get at, really... Is when I talk about Honda changing motorcycles in America, it's important because when I said the significance of the You Meet the Nicest People on a Honda thing, Honda is credited as having the first lifestyle campaign, which was You Meet the Nicest People on Honda." Honda. If you look at the ads, they featured predominantly women riding the bikes, Younger people, um, it was the 60s, so there still weren't any other ethnicities, but uh, but they were really progressive on the women riding and and all of that. And you know, t- teenagers, businessmen, different stratas of the society at the time. It's also kind of an interesting bike. point because very, very progressive at the time, almost to the standard of today.
1: Well, almost. that's kind of that's kind of interesting because you know, in Southeast Asia, there would be almost fifty fifty women and men riding motorcycles because everybody worked and it was just a normal form of transportation, right? So you they they kind of went in with that mindset of we're selling to everybody the same way that Ford or Toyota or at the time maybe even you know, Suzuki. We're trying to sell cars to everybody.
0: Yeah, uh, the only i I I okay I can't say this one hundred percent, but because the Japanese were a disliked minority in America at the time, uh, this is this is very like very post war, right? This is less than a decade after the end of World War II. The Japanese were not liked in this country at all. Right? Right. So they probably would have included a lot of minorities in their ad campaign if they didn't have to tread such a, a tight line, right? So it was a very, very progressive ad campaign that actually worked. In the time, late 50s, early 60s, America was not very progressive at all, right? Mm-hmm. And but they made it work, and the reason I want to bring this point across is that you know everyone talks about you know new bike sales today and all of that. Well, I think there's a way that Honda can parlay this into a new ad campaign now, right? Because if you think about how Harley brought the first, sorry, not Honda brought the first lifestyle campaign to the states. Well, there's not much of a real lifestyle campaign going on today besides Harley. Harley owns the motorcycle lifestyle campaign right now, Well, it's right? still even they huge. They dominate
1: that. It's still even huge in there. And even in Honda's, you know, cars, there's lots of lifestyle. Look at the CRV. Look at the Fit. Yeah. It's all lifestyle.
0: Right, but it's not on that campaign that Subaru is doing with like oh, love makes a Subaru, right? Yeah. Which is all like, oh, if you're a really caring environmental let everyone's freak flag fly progressive person, the Subaru is the car for you, right? Mhm. They sort of tapped into that like Apple marketing that way, right? I think the angle for Honda now, I think their new slogan should be Honda Ride every day.
1: That's really good.
0: Separate yourself from the image and focus on the passion for the machine. Focus on the practicality of the machine. Focus on the quality of the machine. Focus on the non-aggressive lifestyle. So ride every day says all the things that you meet the nicest people on a Honda does, but also quietly puts you a step above in implying that your product is also for the serious rider. That's
1: really good. I like that.
0: Honda, why haven't you still hired us? <laughs> Honda, ride every day.
1: And it perfectly fits in with their current image. Absolutely, because they've got a wide range
0: of bikes in all sorts of different categories, and none of them are really class leaders right now, except for the Goldwing. But they're all insanely reliable, practical machines. But they've all still, in every category, above the middle benchmark in performance as well. So it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. I think. Anyway. So there we I go. I love
1: it. That's excellent.
0: Okay. I think now we're, at, we're able to end the All super. Right. Cup. <laughs> let's let's give a uh, let's do this. Okay, palate cleanser. Moving on to something else, okay? All right. So, I've got a little segment that I've been wanting to do for a few weeks now, right? And I really want to do some sort of, like, practical motorcycle advice. In some of our early episodes, we did, like, long-distance riding tips and things like that and whatever, right? I want to talk about one that's going to affect a lot of people. Flat tires. Okay? And so, I've had some recent experience with motorcycle flat tires, and... I think that, like, 99% of all guys, uh, or people, all oh guys, all people out there riding bikes are completely unprepared for a flat tire on their bike.
1: Most people I know aren't prepared for a flat tire on their car.
0: Right. So, this is likely, going if you ride a lot, going to happen at some point, and it's going to be a major bummer. Okay, and it's not just because your ride simply comes to a halt all of a sudden. It's way more than that. Like, do you have someone with a trailer that can come and get you? Do you have insurance where you can get towed somewhere? Do you have the ability to fix that tire? Right? So the answers to all of these is pretty much no for everyone, right? Okay, So here's what you need to do, okay? A lot of people will tell you you can't plug a motorcycle tire. First of all, you can. You just need to know how to properly do it, okay? So here's my advice. The next time you need to change your tires, before you take that wheel off and take it into the dealership, or just Let's say you're taking your bike to the dealership to get the tires changed, all right? Bring a nail with you and a hammer. Puncture that tire in the parking lot. Go for it. And go down to O'Reilly's AutoZone, whatever your local auto shop is, and just buy a regular tire puncture kit. Get the little rasp tool. Get the little eye hook sewing looking thing but that's for you know putting the rubber plug through all of that okay and the first thing i want you to do is when the tire is just out of air try to plug it when it's flat you won't be able to do it but try it anyway just so you feel it because you can't really plug a tire unless it's got some sort of air pressure Right? And this is why people say you can't plug motorcycle tires. Trying to plug a tire when it's deflated just doesn't work. You need that rubber to be rigid to force that bit through, get that rubber through, and then be able to pull it out and break it and get it to solidly plug. Right. So the second thing you need, besides the plug tools, is you need some compressed air canisters. Why the hell... Are you riding without compressed air canisters? I, I've i got some in my tank bag now. So, you know, there's a chance you'll get a flat tire, you'll notice the air pressure going down, you'll stop in town somewhere near a gas station. Also,
1: by the way, do actually check your tire pressure every couple weeks
0: you should check it more than every couple weeks on a bike but you know in your car at least every couple weeks yeah no one does i i do cuz i'm a fucking weirdo but yeah you really should but anyway um i probably check my the tire pressure on my bike once a week which still probably isn't enough but i do it um so, what you want is little compressed air canisters. So, when you got the flat tire, and you need multiples of these, one is not enough. I mean, you need like four, okay? Because you're going to need one to get enough pressure in the tires just so you can find where the hole is. It's not going to be super obvious. You're going to have to roll the bike over, you're going to have to put your hand over, you're going to have to listen, you're going to have to find that hole for starters. By the time you find it, all the air pressure's gone, and you can't plug it. So this is
1: where you bring. This is where you uh, use your your Boy Scout training and take your your water bottle, get the tire wet, so you can find. So you can find it more easily,
0: right? But the the likelihood is you're going to be on like a trip somewhere. You're going to be in the middle of nowhere. Just all of a sudden, oh, my tire's flat. I'm on the side of the road. I don't have a bottle of water. I don't have anything, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to need to put some pressure in this tire to find where the hole is, right? And then, if you followed my advice, you have a plug kit, all right? So you can find the hole. You've got you found out where the hole is. Now you, put, you need to put a little bit more pressure in there to get it back up again to some sort of pressure so you can move very quickly and plug it, which is why I'm telling you the next time you change your tires, puncture that old tire in the parking lot of the, of where you're getting your tire changed so you can practice this. So when it comes down to the moment, when you have a limited amount of compressed air you can put in that tire, you know you can get it on the first or second try, no problem, right? Mm. Interesting. So, after you've plugged it, then you still need, like, another couple canisters to actually get it up to correct pressure. You're also going to need a razor blade to cut off the excess uh, rubber that comes on the tire, because it's not good to have, because after you plug it, there'll be some little bits of, of the plug sticking out after the tire, right? It's really simple, and... I don't think I know another motorcyclist right now that's actually prepared for this situation. Now, a lot of people tell you, hey, don't ride on a plugged tire. And you know what? I don't disagree with you. But when you're stuck in the middle of nowhere, what are you going to do, right? I think everyone will agree you should plug the tire, and if you have the means to get it back up to pressure that's good to get you off the side of the highway in the middle of Kansas or wherever the hell you are to get somewhere to properly repair the tire or have it replaced right. right yeah it's pretty simple
1: i don't think anybody i don't know of anybody who's advertised a tire plug as a permanent solution
0: right but i don't know that many people these days that are familiar with how to plug a tire and I don't know that many and those that do carry tire plugs they're not carrying compressed air when we're on road trips we've got the we've actually got the the compressor pump tool with us mm-hmm. right that just runs off the battery right so we don't actually need now i've personally started carrying little compressed air canisters which are not expensive but you need a minimum four of them to do this job because you need to waste two of them Just getting to the point where you actually pressure the tire up. And of course, you need a tire gauge as well to do this correctly.
1: All right. I bet, nah, well, I bet right now, I bet I could get within three psi just poking my tires. I think I've got it pretty dialed in at this point.
0: I'm confident I can get within 10. I'm confident you can get within 10. Within 3 is a bit of a claim, but yeah, okay. I'll give it to you that if you have experience, you can probably get to something that's not crazy dangerous. You, you can pressure it up enough just to limp your way to somewhere where you can get things sorted properly.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: tire pressure gauges are like six dollars right
1: this is true <laughs> like, this why not know what it actually is you should but if you're reckless and irresponsible you, you might still be able to get away
0: i think if you're the kind of person that's going to listen to my advice right now you're, you're going to be in for the extra six dollars for the tire pressure gauge you know uh, yeah, why not go for it even a shitty tire pressure gauge right because there's a lot of like shitty tire pressure gauges that have you know questionably calibrated right i'm
1: also kind of being a bit of a dick because i do have a tire pressure gauge under the seat of both of my bikes right now (laughs) right
0: so you know why not but i think this is something that like no one thinks about for whatever reason i know like blowouts are crazy rare these days and everything but i just I've been asking people, you know, as I'm passing out cards for the show and everything and talking to people about their bikes, I no one is prepared for a flat tire. No one. It's shocking to me. And, you know, I had a flat recently and I had a plug kit in my bike. And it's very fortunate that I was just right next to a gas station and there was an air pump right there. But it just dawned on me like, holy crap, you can't plug a flat tire. It's actually got to have some. It doesn't work if there's not some pressure in it. You try to push that plug in and the rubber just gives in and you run into the rim with what you're trying to plug in quickly. Like it just doesn't work unless there's pressure in it. So you need compressed air canisters with you to do it properly. Otherwise, basically, when you're out riding, you're just running the risk of being completely stranded. Now, I don't know, if you're riding close to your home and you have a buddy that lives near you who has a trailer, right? Or you've got insurance that you don't mind using to get yourself a lift, okay, but your whole afternoon is shot, that's for certain, and... What if you're commuting and you're going to work? What, you're just not going to show up to work?
1: What if you're doing a tour in a country that you don't speak the language?
0: Right. I I just, I just want to talk to everyone and be like, Hey, tire plug kits are like $8. The compressed air is like another $10. Like... The pressure gauge is like six... For $25, you can just put all this stuff under your seat or in a tank bag or in whatever storage you've got on your bike. Everyone has... I don't care. I don't care if you're on a cafe racer. You can find a place to store this shit. Okay? Do yourself a favor and just get these basic things. And the next time you go to get your tires changed... Practice on the fucked up tire that's about to get changed in the in the in the shop's parking lot, so you know what you're actually dealing with, because you can go from a completely ruined day, weekend or long trip across country or overseas to just 15 minutes of inconvenience, basically. If you just continue to choose on the plug tire. Which might be fine. I've heard accounts of people riding on a plugged tire for thousands of miles. Like, it's it's not that insane. I mean, really, you know, when you got a plugged tire, your biggest concern is just another slow leak occurring. In which case, just plug it again and see what happens after that. You know, you'll already know what the feeling and sensation is of your rear tire losing pressure. Right, so you'll so the second time you'll notice it coming up and it'll be a less dangerous situation so why not go for it I don't know I'm not saying you're dumb it's just obvious to me <laughs> alright I'm sure we've got other things to talk about in this episode do we? do we not? I don't know
1: I think we've got lots of things to talk about but what do we have for time here
0: I think we're at about an hour forty. That's
1: probably a good place to stop. I'm I'm sure most of this is something we can bring up another time. Alright.
0: Okay. So remember everybody, you can email us at the nocom not the podcast at gmail dot com. You can tweet us at nocomoto podcast, although no one does, and no one ever will. We want to hear from you. Give us your thoughts, feelings, concerns, <laughs> and uh, with that, tell us we're... how
1: your day was. Yeah,
0: tell us how your day was. Well, I mean, we don't care, but tell us how your day was. But no, seriously, um, do give us uh, reviews and ratings on iTunes. A few people have started doing that. Uh, super appreciated, everybody. Continue to do it. Actually, uh, uh, right before we go out, I want to say. Right now on iTunes, if you do a search for Modo, there are no less than like eight defunct podcasts that appear before us. And none of them have dropped an episode since 2014. And they only continue to get listens and appear before us because they just happen to have more listens because they were established then and because they have just continuously been appearing first in the queue under a search. It would really be nice if we could start appearing above some podcasts in an iTunes search that are actually active. Right, And I understand this is a phenomenon that happens because there aren't very many motorcycle podcasts. I know it's not because we're a shitty podcast. I know it's not because you're shitty listeners, because you guys are great listeners. But the reviews and the ratings will go a long way to help us appear in front of podcasts which no longer operate. Or there are some podcasts that just aren't even motorcycle related that appear. There's an episode of like the John Hodgman podcast that appears above us. because Which, motor- by the way, is
1: actually an excellent episode and you should totally listen to it.
0: I agree. And I have listened to it just out of just insane curiosity of what is this single episode that's beating us. But it's not motorcycle related.
1: I, I It kind of is okay tangentially
0: there's the african music podcast that appears before us on a search for moto the moto podcast that's (laughs) super annoying there's what else is there's um a a podcast by a guy like dj moto that appears before us which is an edm playlist podcast it's just a dj that creates playlists of EDM music, and this appears before us, okay, and uh, as well as a bunch of other really awesome motorcycle podcasts, right? I do want to talk about, um, let's say, um, this motorcycle life. Um, well, uh, I've had some email exchanges with uh, the mastermind behind that, and you should absolutely be listening to this motorcycle life. He doesn't put episodes out very often but that's because he puts insane passion and work into every episode he puts out so you should absolutely be listening to that and so with that with my gripe's out of the way I think we finally are ready to end now what do you say alright let's close it out okay
1: and I don't wanna die just wanna ride on my
0: motorcycle. side mmm you hear us next time coming from coda stay safe and stay tuned bye